Okay. Feels like a bit like I should come in and say, as I was saying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't seem that long ago. <laughs> okay, we're going to pick up dependent origination again. First two links we've done, so we've got another ten to do. Actually, I don't need it. Can we go off? There we go. <laughs> okay, so we've got the other ten links of dependent origination to look at. Now, I think I mentioned it to you, but I'm going to say this again. The, the probably the best textual version of looking at dependent origination is in the long discourses of the Buddha, and it's something called the Maha Nidana Sutta in the long discourses. That's N-I-D-A-N-A. And this is the, the real classical interpretation of it. Now, although I'm going through 12, this particular version only has nine in it, but it gives all of the important ones. So that's where we find it. We find it also, I think as I mentioned to you before, in the Udana, which is you know, just a, a small, simple text Udana, by the means, means clearly said, something that was clearly stated or clearly said. And in that we get three versions, but they're three versions of the twelvefold version. That's all. One backwards, one forwards, and one backwards and forwards. <laughs> <laughs> and really what I think it's showing is just how important this teaching is. I really, really cannot underestimate it, um, just the, the level of importance of this teaching. If there is one teaching, I would say it's worth really memorising all of the links of. It is dependent origination. Because this really is the map. Um, it's our map to liberation, if understood correctly. And it's a map of how we get into the state that we do, how we get into the sangsaring state. Uh, it's a it's a huge extrapolation of the second of the ennobling truths. This is what it's meant to do. It's meant to take that second ennobling truth, the truth of a cause to suffering, and show how this dukkering experience that we all have originates. So it's about origination, hence dependent origination. Now, obviously, the last time I was here, we looked at the first two links, and we looked at, I wouldn't say a lot of depth, but we looked at a little bit of depth. So starting with the ignorance, I'm just reminding you, I hope this is, doesn't sound like it's new, this is all that we did in the last session we were together. Just to remind you, we start with ignorance. Ignorance, I was glossing as being confusion. Yeah, remember I made a poor attempt at a joke and saying you know, the confusion was like being dumped in a strange country with no map um, and only the locals to guide you, and they were all rather confused as well. <laughs> and this was life. This is where we start from. In many ways we don't even notice what we're calling ignorance. Now again, part of the reason I think in Buddhist circles I'd like to actually people to memorise these terms is because rather than keep referring to it as ignorance, I'd much rather refer to it as a vidya, which is the which is the Pali term for it. Sanskrit is not a lot different. Avidya you know, means lack of knowing, not knowing something. So we're 
in this confused state. And it's such a part, if you like, of the warp and woof of life that we don't even notice it most of the time. Yeah. Christina Feldman actually has a very useful way. She says it's like the carpet that we walk on, which I think is a very useful way of describing it. You don't actually notice the carpet most of the time unless it has a glaringly horrible pattern in it. <laughs> now, another way of looking at the whole of dependent origination is how each moment of experience is patterned. How every moment of experience is patterned. What are the factors that come together in every moment of experience and pattern that moment of experience as being a sangsaring moment? Yeah. Because this is what we're still really talking about. We're still talking about the problem. And as you probably gather, I mean, all Buddhist schools are pretty diagnostic. We've got to get what the problem is. You know, why do we why do we continue to go round in circles? Because that's what you know, sangsara literally means to go round in circles, a circularity of experience. And it's that question: How does it come about? Why does it come about? And why is there this circularity? Why do we, even with the very best of intentions, and as you know last week I spoke quite a bit about intention, why with the very best of intentions do we nearly always end up in the same place, making similar mistakes, doing the same things? Now, I know most of you in this room have had a lot of experience in Buddhist circles, and I hold my hand up and say I have, but we end up doing the same things, don't we? <laughs> They come dressed differently sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's flavoured in the same way, isn't it? So we might be, I don't know, having sat on the cushion, come from a retreat centre, and it all everything's rosy for a week, ten days, I don't know, and it evaporates. It's a bit like sort of osmosis. It sort of evaporates <laughs> through... You know, it comes out of our skin, you know, any, any awakening we might have got. <laughs> and then we're back into the same old stuff, getting upset about the same old stuff. Again and again and again and again. And as you've heard me say before, it's, I'm not really talking about even the massive stuff that happens to us. The existential tragedies that occur in life, you know, like sickness, old age and death. You know, um... I'm talking about the ordinary things of life, where you hear these teachings and you hear them again and again, and there you are, getting upset in a very, very similar way. You're absolutely right. It's not the same way. It's a very similar way. But it's a pattern that keeps repeating itself out, playing itself out. And part of the reason for that is because it's driven by a lack of real examination. We don't look closely enough at our experience to see how factors come into play which supports a pretty miserable experience for a lot of life. Now, I don't want to over overplay this because there are obviously joys and there are obviously pleasures that we have in life. But somehow, we are always falling back into this dukkering experience into the experience of it's not quite right. Yeah. Not feeling quite at home in the world. Yeah. It, and things actually, even when we're enjoying them, when we become aware that we're enjoying them, 
that's often when they're on their decline. So even our joys end up as being something which we ultimately uh, find unsatisfactory because they, we know they're not going to last in some way or another. <coughs> All of this is part of this you know, avidya, this ignorance process. So we don't look closely enough. We don't actually examine really the fundamental ground. And part of the reason for that is... I might suggest it, is I think we almost think that some of this stuff is human nature. We do things in certain ways and we get certain experiences and, well, that's just human nature. (coughs) And so those three things that I spoke about, actually four of them if we include the Abhidhamma view as well, those three things I spoke about which are either the content, which we call the asavas, the effluents that are flowing out of us. I joked about it last, I'm going to be more serious about it tonight. This is stuff that's continuously flowing out of us. It's pouring out of us a lot of the time. Um, we don't keep a cap on it. And, and really, we do not have an understanding that it's pouring out of us. It's only when you take that reflexive step back, and perhaps, for example, let's take the Abaddon one, when we're spouting opinions. Now, we're going to go to, <laughs> to a place at some point, um, probably this week, um, where we'll start to look at some of the developments in Mahayana Buddhism, particularly a development called the Middle Way philosophy. Surprise, surprise, back to Middle Ways again, you know, of Nagarjuna. This person who lived on the cusp of the first and second century, um, writing in Sanskrit, wrote these horrendously gnomic texts, which are really difficult to decipher. But there seems to be one underlying theme, and this is relating back to the opinions again, and I think his philosophy can really be summed up quite easily. Shut up. (laughs) 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 And experience. Stop talking and having opinions about things. But the only correct view, the only right view, is no view. Throwing us back onto experience. That experience is all we're left with. The moment we try to conceptualise it, then we get into a view itself. And there's a very famous utterance by him in one of his texts, which he says, I have no view, therefore I can't be refuted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But really the gist of it, and I'll go into this on obviously a lot more detail, because actually really underpinning, and this is why I'm saying this at this stage, underpinning the whole of the Gardner's philosophy is dependent origination. Everything being dependently originated. Absolutely nothing, including our experience, arising out of nothing. It all arises because of causes and conditions. Because that, a chain of dependencies each thing relying on the other. You know, that image again, I know I've said it a number of times, that image of the cornstalks actually supporting each other. Yeah. This is the image we're left with. So in teaching this, Buddha is giving us a radical look at how Dukkha is generated and actually, if one thinks your way into it, also how we can break the Dukkha-ing chain. If you imagine, if you actually just, for the sake of thinking about it for a second, if you imagine a linear chain, pull one link out, and the whole lot drops to pieces. 
know, if you had a you know, necklace or something and one bit's come out of it, it kind of doesn't hang together, does it, in many ways. And so what the, really I think the Buddha is suggesting is if we really begin to perceive this, this is why he refers to it when he chastises Ananda and saying this teaching is profound, Ananda. You know, and in its profundity is a real depth of understanding human experience. Human suffering experience, human unsatisfactory experience. Yeah. But also it's a model for the whole of the universe. In many ways, although it's put very, very simply, this is not that vastly different from the scientific view. You know, it's very much could be seen as proto-science. You know. This happens, that happens. This ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. This is causal efficacy. that there is nothing standing, isolated and independent in this world. That takes us back to the teaching that we spent quite a bit of time with last week, Anatta. There is not a self standing isolated and independent in this world. Yeah. And that really is the good news. I mean, I'm you know, giving you quite a lot of the bad news, and you know, looking around and seeing miserable faces, but it's actually the good news, because if you were an independent self... Remember what I said last week? You couldn't change. If there weren't causes and conditions, if there couldn't be some pieces that could be removed and other pieces that could be developed and sustained, in other words, it's only through causal efficacy that change comes about. And I mean, here, spiritual change and transformation comes about. So, you know, hang on to that idea as being the best, that this is really good news, that this is going to happen. So when we start to diagnose it, we start to diagnose it. And I think probably the Buddha actually probably started in reverse order. I don't think he actually probably started where I'm starting with ignorance. He probably got a question that went, why do things decline and disappear? Well, because they come into being. Why do they come into being? Because there's this urge to become to produce, you know, if you can think of even just the works we do, you want to create something, and you create it for a certain period of time, it comes into being, and that might be a situation, it might not be a thing, and then what happens? It declines and it disappears. Then you have to go through the whole process again. Why, you know, this urge to become, well, because of clinging to an idea, for example. And so on and so forth. And you trace it all the way back here. Now, just for teaching reasons, it's often easier to start with the way I'm starting. So we looked at the ignorance, which I've been kind of trying to put in a slightly different way tonight. We looked at the ignorance, which is this warp and woof of the background of daily life, this carpet that we walk on. We don't notice it most of the time. Because we don't notice, for example, as I said, the statements that come out which are actually views about this world. We don't see them as views. Yeah. Mostly we take them to be have veracity, to have some kind of truth attached to them. Yeah. We obviously, because we're so caught up in it, we most of the time won't notice this urge to be. It's a sustaining, you know, you're just getting on with your life. And so it really kind of completely integrated, in a sense, into that, that you don't reflect on it. This trying to be something continuously in life. The desire to have stuff that carries over in some way that might be important 
doesn't have to take, as I said to you last week, doesn't have to take the full-blown theory of a kind of soul going from life to life or anything of that sort. It can be just those good works, you know, your children and things I mentioned to you when I was speaking last week. We sometimes notice, not a lot, we sometimes notice sensual desire. A lot of the time we're so caught up in it, though, that that even goes unnoticed. This craving for sensuality, craving for comfort, for ease in life. Um, One of the things that we soon discover is actually life isn't easy (laughs) a lot of the time. It really isn't. Um, And sensual desire, again, reaches a peak, and even if we get it, it declines as well. Then, of course, the ignorance itself, which is the wolf and wolf of it, that is so deep in the psyche, the confusion that we don't notice that, and that manifests as the other ones, really. That is productive in generating sankharas, and all of the stuff I spoke about last week in terms of the sankharas, generating those sankharas, those conditioned habits, karmic formations. Remember, I used lots of different ways of of thinking about what the sankharas are. All of those intentions which are coming out as activities, which basically form us in a particular way, form our thinking, our speech, and our activity in this world. Now, dependent on those, I'm not going to go into them again, but dependent on the Sankharas, and we could actually spend almost the rest of the week just talking about the Sankharas, they're that important, and I will bring them up and mention them time to time. But dependent on the Sankharas, and Sankharas and the Vidya, ignorance, confusion, are what we bring from the past into this moment. So the first thing that consciousness is conscious of really is sankharas. That's what it's conscious of. Now I don't mean fully reflectively conscious. Because remember consciousness is layered in many ways. But we're conscious and actually it's pointing both ways because the consciousness is consciousness of the sankharas and the sankharas are basically flavouring the kind of consciousness we have. Consciousness is the third link? Consciousness is the third link. Vijnana. Sankhara. So it's avidya, ignorance, if you stick with the ordinary translation, sankhara, and then consciousness, vijnana. So you've got those three elements, and if you're drawing arrows between them, as I often do when I have a, have a blackboard up, I draw it between them both, one pointing in each direction. So the formations are influencing the consciousness, and the consciousness is influencing the formations. So what we're conscious of, actually, mostly in any given moment, are pre-generated dispositions. You said consciousness is, just in general, it's knowing. It's just knowing. Any form of knowing. Because we had some discussion about that. There's some confusion about the difference between consciousness and awareness. Yes, we talked quite a bit about that. Awareness has a very specific 
meaning in Buddhist psycho psychological terms. Uh, but consciousness is really just defined as that which... It's, what, it's defined, actually, if you want to look at textual definition, of clear and knowing. Yeah. In other words, the clearness in the sense is, is that it, it's, it's not composed out of something. It's not solid. The knowing is its function. The function of consciousness is to know something, to know whatever it is presented with. That is all. Awareness, then? Awareness. Well, we did have this discussion last yeah. week, if I remember rightly, um, when I started talking about sati. Sati is awareness, and it's this wholesome mental factor. And it can only rise in wholesome, in any wholesome moment. So it can arise with consciousness, but it doesn't necessarily arise with consciousness. So they're not synonymous. No, not at all. In other words, you, what you can see, if you, if you want to kind of have a metaphor for this, consciousness is a knowingness that can, can be directed by awareness. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily directed by awareness. Because where, does, where does attention fit in while we're on this subject? Sorry, why? Where does attention fit in? Manasakara, that's quite different. Again, attention does arise with every moment of consciousness. But the quality of you know, what it's arising with is dependent on other mental factors arising at the same time. So remember I used the term last week when I said you can have wise attention and you can have unwise attention. Yeah. So in other words, attention is an ethically variable factor. Yeah. Whereas, when I start talking about sati, when I start talking about awareness, it's always a wholesome mental factor. Yeah. So attention can be wholesome or unwholesome, depending on the other mental factors that arise with it. Yeah. So I can be extremely attentive but greedy. Or I could be extremely attentive and, for example, developing confidence, yeah, trust. If the consciousness then comes first, or... No, it arises, it co-arises. It co-arises. Yeah. There's no separateness from this. It's always co-arising. Some of it, you've probably seen it when you look at um, some of the books on this. So a lot of translations will play around with different... Um, translations of Paticca which is actually the um, Pali term. Another one that you can get is conditioned cogenesis. Yeah. Codependent arising. Dependent origination. Um, not accurate, but I've also played around with situational patterning. The way each situation that we find ourselves is patterned. You know, so the way we experience each moment. That kind of preserves the spirit, but it doesn't preserve the letter of it. So it's always about co-conditionality. Yeah. I think just carry around with you the idea of something propping something else up. Yeah. So object, <laughs> consciousness, they prop each other up. Yeah. Buddha is saying there's no consciousness without the object. However, in a way, there's no really the object of experience without consciousness. There might be things out there, but it's got to come with consciousness. But also remember as well, while we're on the topic of consciousness, that consciousness is consciousness of all the mental stuff. 
that's going on as well. So that's, if you like, in this present moment, that's the first moment of our experience. What we're conscious of is conscious of dispositions. Dispositions of thought, word, and deed. Sankaras. Sankaras, yeah. So what we're doing in a sense, now this is the, the kind of model that you're getting, is carrying over into this moment stuff from the previous moment, and from the previous moment from that, and again, it's a sense of continuity. Yeah. Something always carrying over into the next moment. Yeah. That's what we bring with us. I always think of it again, I like to think graphically. I can think of it as carrying our little sack yeah. with our stuff in it. Effluent. <laughs> or our effluent. That's not such a. I, I don't <laughs> think I'll go there. <laughs> but we're always carrying something over with us into the moment. Now, because there is consciousness, consciousness is patterning the next moment of experience, which is Namarupa, which literally means name and form. You know, Nama is about as close as you get in Sanskrit to English, or Pali to English. It's the same in both languages. What this is indicating is generally anything that's Nama is to do with mental functioning. There's reasons for this, but I won't go into them. And then rupa, form, physical form, exactly the same as we had um, when talking about the khandas. Yeah. Now, rather than being an actual mental and physical body that's coming into being at that point, although it's talking about nama and rupa, what it's talking about is the way those dispositions through consciousness will condition mind and body. They are blueprinting it, almost like laying down a blueprint. So if you've got, for example, dispositional habits to, I don't know, um, eat something bad that you've carried over from previous moments, from childhood, perhaps, that is patterning the mind, obviously, in a certain way with regard to craving, but it's also going to be blueprinting the body perhaps setting up health problems in the future, if you continue to do it. So each moment when we're unaware, we continue to kind of almost start to flick the blueprint for something that's going to happen later on. Can we call that conditioning? It is conditioning, yeah. It It is conditioning. It's, It's conditioning mind and body and what's going to happen in the future. And every moment we're doing that, and we, do, we don't just do it, we do it through past conditioning. Yeah. So, in a way, what we're doing is looking back always. If, we, if I had this as a circle, we're always seeing the confusion and the sankharas which are formed out of them, if you like, again, bleeding through into the present moment. Yeah. Your past is always with you. It's always there. It's always coming into the present moment. It's often affecting how we treat this mind and body. How we set it up for future ills or future health in many ways. Is Nama Rupa number four? Nama Rupa is number four. That's right. So, Nama Rupa also is interactive with 
because it's mind and body, with what's called salayatana, the six sense spheres. How do you spell that? Salayatana, S-A-L-A-Y-A-T-A-N-A. Six, what did you say? Six sense spheres. Are those the do- sense doors? These are the sense doors, yeah. yeah. But this, this, particularly the word ayatana in Pali means a sphere. In other words, it comes to us kind of like whole sound. We're surrounded by sound. We're surrounded by visual objects. Yeah, our mind is constantly busy. It has another meaning as well, which I won't go into. But So we're kind of in the middle of the sphere. Not the three dimensions. Yeah. The three dimensions. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sounds, I'm not just hearing a sound from one side, I'm talking, you know, if we've got perfect, okay functioning, I'm hearing sound coming from all directions. It's, you know, it's like being in a, you know, in, a, in literally immersed in a sphere of some sort. And so we're getting audible sounds, gustable you know, things, tastes, touch, smell, the olfactory usage, and we're getting mental stuff, so it's six sense spheres. Now this is where life starts to get interesting. (laughs) 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 Because if we've got six sense spheres, then dependent on having six sense spheres or six senses, then we come into contact with things. This is Pasa. We're contacting things. Can you spell that? P H A double S A. This is the next one, obviously. Yep, that's number six. Gosh, we're whizzing through them now. <laughs> 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 and what does it mean? Pasa, that means contact. So the eye contacts visible things, the nose contacts. You know, smelly things. Is that perception as well? Or no, it's part of the act of perception. So contact is what is partly involved. So if, if you wanted a definition of perception, it usually involves a sense organ, an object, and contact. So that's a quick, crude way of thinking about it. And I think I said to you again this last week, that if you broke down perception in that way, again, you've got the elements of perception, but with no perceiver, no eye, again, in it. So when you break things down, there is, you can't find this eyeness that you're looking for. So contact is constantly contacting things. You know, I would say the one advantage that you know, Buddhist theory has on this is, is that actually, if you've put into a sensory deprivation chamber, you're still going to be contacting stuff, because there's all that mental stuff going on. Yeah. So actually, we're always contacting. As long as we're embodied in this way, um, we're going to be constantly contacting. And here begins the interesting story. <laughs> you sigh. <laughs> well, it's it's because um, dependent on contact, Vedana feeling arises and remember let's get this absolutely right I've done this with you before but I want to get these things absolutely right with you 
that Vedana is not emotion. It's not feelings. It's not feelings, no. It's sensation. It's just a bare sensation of something. So, in other words, all of our experience comes to us with a tone. And the tone, are, the tone is, I like it, I dislike it, or I neither like or dislike it. And we did this when we looked at anatta, the structure of anatta. Isn't it more the reaction to the sensation rather than the sensation itself? Well, it's a feeling of unpleasantness that we get. So, the, you know, the pain in the knee is, is, is one thing, and the sensation that's arising from it, the feeling we have about that pain, is the Vedana. So it's the pain contact? The pain is the contact, yes. I'm contacting, seeing a sensation arising, and then the next part of that is the you know, movement. You know, perhaps if it's a pain in my knee, I might shift my position. If it's a pain in my thinking, in my mental events, then I might want to move away from it. You know, not go there. Repress it. Fun? Get drunk, okay. <laughs> One solution. <laughs> but yes, I mean, there can be the opt- opt- trying to avoid, in other words. So, and this is, this is the real important bit. This is, in a way, the most important element of the whole cycle of dependent origination, is when we come into looking at what goes on in this next element, what arises out of feeling. So it is Vedana number seven? It is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to get the number. Okay. So out of Vedana arises tanha, craving. How do you spell that? T-A, I keep wanting to give you the diacritic marks, because there's little diacritic marks that go there. T-A with an N, with a dot underneath it, H-A with a macron over the top of it, which is a flat line. It just means the, the vowel sound is extended. That's all. What's the dot mean? It means it's a retroflex. It's actually what it's doing. What all these little marks, for those who are not familiar with them, what all these little marks do is they actually tell you how to pronounce them. Um, because actually about you, the way that you either lengthen vowel sounds or touch the tongue in particular parts of the mouth. Mm. So a retroflex is actually tangha. You know, curl the tongue back mm. on the end. Tangha. <laughs> Your first Pali pronunciation class. <laughs> but they're just guidances to, for pronunciation. And the thing with all the vowel sounds is there are many, many more vowel sounds in Pali and Sanskrit. So you have to distinguish them. Uh, short vowels and long vowels. So tanha, let's get into this, this because this is really important. Tanha means unquenchable thirst. It literally means that we cannot be satisfied. Almost the world is structurally incapable of providing us with the satisfaction we're looking for. <laughs> Oh dear! <laughs> That's a big sigh. <laughs> well, for one thing, what is it? It's a Nietzsche. A Nietzsche. It's impermanent. Yeah. It's dukkha. Well, that's the unsatisfactoriness. And it doesn't possess any stability. 
in terms of being things that are not going to change. So all these three elements are interrelated. You know, going right back to where we started, the three characteristics again. Yeah. So, but tanha actually psychologically, and this is the important dimension of it, reveals a deep pathos in human beings that we are driven to look for satisfaction in the very things that won't give it to us at all. This again is about, if you went much more into psychological theory, then you're looking at how effectively what's going on is that we're looking for satisfaction by placing our attention on things that, because it's unwise attention, simply will not give you back anything. Now, the Buddha likens this to, he says, a dog sitting outside of a butcher's, and the butcher throws the dog a bone that is only smeared with blood. It has no flesh on it whatsoever. And the dog chews and chews and chews and chews and doesn't get any nutrition from it mm. at all. And it's a sense, and this is why it's pathos, I think, is what we're doing. We're going over the same things again and again. It's, all, it's almost like we can't believe it. Isn't <laughs> it? You know, you can't quite believe that this thing that I keep doing still doesn't give me the satisfaction I'm looking for. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hugely funny. The Beatles were right again, weren't they, when they said they can't get no satisfaction? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's <wrong. laughs> the wrong side. <laughs> 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 but yes, I mean, it's very much, you, you, it's not going to produce anything satisfying. Sometimes <laughs> you get a little bit, and so it's kind of tempting. That's right, it yields something, doesn't it? You kind of get the slight flavour of that might be something there, but you still keep on at it. Hence, I don't think that the reason that it's, uh, we have this phrase in English, like a dog with a bone, <laughs> yeah, exactly the same, chewing it over and over and over again, doing the same things again and again and again. Well, I, I studied this some and, and um, um, the tanha doesn't arise inevitably, does it? from each uh, sensation of pleasant, neutral, or... It does. Uh, I mean, we could have a slightly unpleasant experience and <clears throat> not get involved in grasping at it. It just no. uh, a little unpleasant, and then it disappears. Well, this and is... The not caught in the, in the craving. No, mm. but the sad story is that the word craving, when we, when we translate it into English, when we translate tanner into English... The craving is not just to have, it's the craving to avoid as well. Mm. So the moment you say, I'm not getting involved with this, but somehow you are getting involved with it, because you're trying to avoid it. You mean the craving is inevitable from every feeling tone that we... Except the <clears throat> neutral wouldn't entail craving. Well, neutral we don't really notice. It's the strong poles mm. of our experience which we're really noticing. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, what I call neither pleasant nor unpleasant is actually an absence of noticing something going on. Yeah. I, I thought this is one of the points in the circle where we can... It is. It is. It is. In samsara, it's almost inevitable. In yeah. Remember, this is a description of samsara. Yeah. Didn't you say last time something about the, the aversion um, comes from someplace else? It's not exactly tanha, it's... 
You made some <coughs> distinction between Tannhaus and graving and the aversion coming from someplace else. No, the aversion arises. The aversion, the aversion is there the moment, for example, we resist something. So t that becomes Tannhaus. Mm. Yeah, the moment I don't like something and I don't want it to happen so the, what we're talking about aversion is literally I don't want it to happen to me and in many ways I think again this is one of the sad parts of the human condition for the most part, not entirely and the sad part is we're actually desperately trying to avoid all sorts of experiences in our lives we literally don't want so much to happen to us so the same drive can be either I, I want this or I don't want it Right. That's right. Interesting, because it can... It moves. Yeah. It's plastic. Again. Mm. Yeah, it does move. As long as we say, I want, whether it's I want not to, or I want to, it's the I want. Yeah, so it's gonna, I want and I don't want. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's I want and I don't want. Mm -hmm. That's really the main tones of it. We, we, we talked earlier, and we had some disagreement, or I don't know, it's sort of unresolved, I think, to some extent, of, um, um, and related to what, Bodhidharma, Bhikkhu Bodhidharma, is, mm -hmm. that, is that who used to, before Ram was here? Yes, that's right. He used to say, uh, you know, out of the pleasant feeling, some desire would arise. You mm -hmm. smell the food, have mm -hmm. desire for it. But the, the desire itself can then be satisfied, and it doesn't have to turn into craving. Well, that's distinguishing between a need and a want. Mm -hmm. you know, the body needs food. And there are actually different words in Pali. I mean, I don't want to go into the linguistic thing. For example, if, I mean, as, as I've said, the word means thirst, unquenchable thirst. There's actually another word in Pali for thirst, which is pipasa. And that means that can be quenched. You know, I need to have a drink. Mm -hmm. you know, and I have to, you know, hot day in India, I need to have a drink. And that can, I can quench. For a time, and in, in the back. future, then you're not obsessed no. with needing to drink. No, you're this, just this have is the desire and drink, yeah. and then there's no residue of craving. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And but it will rise then physiologically. The thirst will arise again, and it'll have to be satisfied again. Mm -hmm. But that's capable of satisfaction, albeit for a, a period of time. Whereas actually what we're talking about with craving, with tanha, is not capable of satisfaction. Now, I think we've all been there, haven't we? Let's, let's talk about the craving to have, to start with. This is quite an easy one. It's like, uh, how have you, have many of you ever told yourself stories in your lives that go along these lines? If only I had, I'd be happy. You know, I'd leave a deliberately blank spot there, you know, because X marks the spot, and you can put whatever you want into it. You ever told yourself that story? If only I had, I'd be happy. If only I won the lottery, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> because there'd be another object at some point. You know, new house, new car. You know, and I'm talking about very, obviously, materialistic things here, but... It, yeah, but we can also talk about situations. If I was only in this situation, I'd be happy. If I was only with this person, I'd be happy. If I went on retreat, I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was asking myself this afternoon, why do I consistently self? Hmm. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah, it Trying is. to create. Yeah. yeah. And this is all why? part... Why? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, 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 
being driven by, remember, the ignorance behind it, by this confusion. Mm. So I really want, I want to take the moralistic thing out of this, because it's not meant to be a kind of finger-wagging thing, oh, this is what we're doing and we're all terribly bad people because of this. is just happening automatically. This is actually our best way of trying to cope with life. It's just not very successful, that's all. It actually ends up creating what we're trying to avoid most of the time. It's hooked up to the sense of eye, though, somehow, it isn't is. it? I, I, what are going to talk about that? I would. Okay. Yeah. But it's all linked up to sense of eye. No, so one of... OK, I might as well put it here. Because, remember we talked about papancha. Mm-hmm. Well, the two main levels of papancha are craving and conceit. <laughs> conceit is about I am, in all the forms... And craving is also linked with that conceit. So when we are papunching, we're just sitting there, just having a nice little papunching session on your cushion. (laughs) (laughs) The thoughts that are going to be prevalent are things like, I don't want to be doing this. Or, what's for lunch? Or, why am I here? I'm not very good at this. Things like that. Again, I'm giving you very crude examples, but in other words, they circle around ourselves again. <laughs> why aren't I enlightened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or why can't I sit still? Or why can't I do this? Yeah. Can it be more subtle than that as well? Yeah, it can be in more. terms of my mind often doesn't, especially when I'm more calm, it doesn't um, <clears throat> say, why can't I be like this or why can't I be like that? It's just obsessive planning in yeah. order to get that thing. So it's, it's quite subtle because it seems quite productive, <laughs> but it's not at all. It's still exactly the same thing. It's just, yeah. so it's sort of... Well, it can appear, but it's, again, it's the I am planning. Yeah. Very much the I am planning. Now, if we're going to give the full version of Papancha, there's three elements actually involved in that. Craving, conceit, and views. That covers your papunching for the day. We're doing all of those things when we're obsessionally thinking. And the whole point about it is that they're like narrative loops that we go round in. Yeah, and they, if you actually begin to see, and just let yourself be entertained by yourself for a little bit, you know, you'll see that this is going on. It's, it's very funny, it's very amusing. You'll, it's like watching the same stuff come round and round again. It's Sansara. TV run, reruns. Yeah. But forever. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I, I tend to joke it, but some of you might have heard me say that, but sometimes on retreat I say to people, I said, why watch the soap operas? If you want to see greed, hatred and delusion, just close your eyes. <laughs> it's as simple as that. So... Craving is craving to have, and it's craving to avoid. This is what we're doing. Now, I did mention also that craving is composed, again, because there's kind of sub-ways of looking at this. So what is the content of craving? Well, there's craving for things, particularly sensual things. And almost any list of the, the hindrances, the negativities, the defilements is going to include something about sensuality within it. Now, this is linked again to the next link that's coming, because attachment is involved to sensuality. It's not that we simply sensual beings, it's that we become attached 
to sensual pleasures. Yeah, we crave them. We want more of them. So there's kamma tanha. Kamma. This is a broad blanket word. I'm sure a word all of you know because it, you know, it's the kamma sutra. Yeah. So is this the next link? No, this is part of the same link. This is still the extrapolation of craving. Mm-hmm. So kamma tanha is the craving for sensual things. Well, it's a breakdown of tanha. It's a breakdown of tanha. Then there is the craving to be, bhava tanha. Craving to be, all that stuff that we're constantly engaged in to make our mark on the world. To to make ourselves feel as if we're here. And actually one of the things that um, psychologically delineates the craving to be is you want it to continue. Now, this could be just an experience. I want this to continue. I feel myself. These are phrases we often use. I I really feel myself today. And you want that to go on. It's kind of statement. I want it to go on. Um, And this is kind of part of the expression, if you like, almost a libidinal expression towards life. But it's a craving. Uh, Wanting this continuance. If only we could have a movie of our patancha, you know, and then replay it and take it apart. And, and really, really see the different elements you're mentioning. Well, in a way, joking aside, in a way that's what we are doing. We're beginning to see the movies of our own minds. The, the problem is it, it goes so quickly. Yeah. There's so much of it, it's hard to remember it. If, if you can't remember it, then... I mean, you just remember the vague outlines of this fantasy about planning the future, where you're an actor and you're worried about something. And, you know, it has all these little parts. It's just my memory can't retain it, you know, very well. But you see, memory itself, in the sense I think you're meaning, it, is part of the quality of sati. It's part of the quality of mindfulness, of being mindful of what is going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so actually, the more we create mindfulness, the more we're going to remember it, the I more familiar it becomes. I personally find it kind of overwhelming, the papancha, because there's so much to it. I mean, there's so many, even in an instant, there's so many parts. Mm. It's like not a whole chapter of a book, but four or five pages mm. in each instant. And it's just, you know, they said, you can only remember seven things at a time. Mm. And then again, a kind of poor brain just can't cope with it. It's like a flood, you know. It's a papancha overdose, basically. Is what we're suffering from, mostly. Um, It is happening so quickly. But actually, if you began to really examine it, if you began to realise it and see the patterns that are arising, Mm -hmm. then the patterns will fall into those three broad areas. Mm -hmm. It's all to do with me. Mm -hmm. It's all to do with my craving. And it's all to do with my views. And then Rob's been talking about the views. The views often are assumptions that we don't even recognize. Yeah, that's right. And so how do you see the views when they're just taken for granted and sort of they're there but they're hidden in a way? But th- this again, I think, is a very practical issue, isn't it, of what we're doing. You're allowing the mind to settle to a degree so some of these things become visible. This is where you get the insights. Yes, that's right. 
Yeah, that's right. The more the mind is settling, the more, for example, the deeper the levels of calm that are produced, the more insight that's going to come up. Yeah, and the calm is important. It has to be there, because if there's agitation there, you're not going to be able to see it. It's all going to be happening so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is why, personally, I mean, I think really founding yourself in good concentration, yeah, which is why we started the retreat with some concentration, yeah, is to get those levels of calm, because everything is happening so fast, you're not going to see them otherwise. You're going to get overwhelmed. Yeah. So, I mean, I always say, if it feels overwhelming, always go back to calming meditations. Always go back to establishing your samadhi. Letting it settle. Letting the sediment fall down to the bottom of the lake a little bit. So that you can get some good reflective stuff that's coming up. This is is what's so important. Um, And I would really recommend that for anybody here. If you're getting too much stuff going on, it's all getting frantic and too busy... Just drop down into into whatever your favoured method of developing somebody, usually the breath, just concentrating on the breath yeah. as a way of being able to let the, the mud settle a bit. So we have all this stuff associated with wanting to be. Then, as I think I mentioned last week, and I'm picking up on stuff I have mentioned before, is there also is the craving not to be. Associated with the craving to be, and it's okay when you feel good about it, is keeping your identity, establishing yourself. Keeping a sense of of who you are and what you are and continuing it. Being able to literally put on the same face and go out each day in the world as the same person. (laughs) That's a hell of a task, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Establishing this identity so that it's recognisable. Yeah, and the last thing you ever want, particularly people around you, is for them to change on you, you know, and be different the next day from the way that they were. Now, again, they're sending this up slightly. But as you can see, it's the, really, the thing I'm really trying to highlight here is how difficult it is. And I think I started off last week one of the talks. It's difficult being a self, isn't it? It really is difficult being a self. It's a lonely business. You know, trying to establish yourself in yourself. I think it's more difficult... These days, because when my parents are growing up, I, I, well, I don't think there were anywhere near as many options. Hmm. It's become a, a much more narcissistic kind of society where kids are desperate for fame, for celebrity. Hmm. It's as if that craving to be has become um, accentuated, you know. Hmm. Yeah, there's a philosopher who wrote about this quite recently, I was reading. He said, you know, the whole cult of celebrity in our societies is a cult of wanting to be something without any talent. <laughs> What's the Pali word for the craving not to be? Vibhava tanha. V i b h a v a. Vibhava. And would you say more now about what that means without it going to the extreme of mm. annihilating oneself? Yeah. Well, obviously, that's the most extreme form is suicidal tendencies. Um, that's when, if you like, the struggle becomes too much. Um, to be this person in this world. More often than not, it's going to take its form in self-destructive behaviour. It also is linked with aggressive tendencies, violence, for example, towards oneself and towards others. So you're annihilating yourself through trying to annihilate the other. 
as well. So Vibhavatam has very, very much, it's actually, these are not mutually exclusive. And I think, again, I mentioned this to you, but here's a reminder if you can't remember it, is I actually said that Kamatanha, the craving for sensual things, could also be an expression of Vibhavatanha, the craving not to be. So the craving for sensual things could manifest as a craving not to be. So I drink too much, or engage in drug-taking activities, or I keep drowning my perceptions with music constantly, or cinema, or, or computer games, or whatever it, the modern manifestations are in this world, simply for it stops me from being. Um, there was a, I don't know if some of you have heard of him, but there's a French philosopher called Georges Bataille, um, and he said that um, <laughs> there were three things that human beings did uh, in trying to lose themselves. It's called, it, one was intoxication, madness, and sexuality. <laughs> These are the three things in which you try to lose yourself. Um, and a bit, you know, I think, again, you pick up elements of thinking within even the European tradition, and you see how it links with the Buddha, because he's saying the same. No matter how much we do this, unless we actually literally destroy ourselves, you know, in the annihilating tendency, we're always finding ourselves back in the same problem. So, in other words, I can saturate my mind and my body with drugs and alcohol and things like that. Busyness. Or business, yep, that's another very modern tendency. Busyness, just making no room to be. That's right. Because... Of Of the the demands. Of the creative, of the ones we create. Yeah. So that there is nothing there. You can't be in that situation, really, truly. And so it's saturation. It's um, losing oneself. But if we don't have a self, what's there to lose? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the problem. And, and what we're trying to do, what goes on in this psychological ping-pong game, because actually we probably go through all of those three forms of tanha in a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going through them all. We're moving from, you know, very rarely just we, do we remain in one mode. We're going from one psychological mode to another psychological mode and back again and through them in the course of a day, if not in the course of an hour. The tea table. Yeah. 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 It's another kind of tea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's happening again and again and again and again. So we're trying to lose ourselves or cement ourselves, but where is the self to lose or cement? And so they're both based on a false premise, a false view of what and who we are. This is what's going on. There's a false view of who and what we are. That's deeply. This is one of your core assumptions. This is one of the core assumptions that's within us. You know, we think we know who we are. And now you could go that all the way back and say, well, of course, that's founded by not knowing. Back to ignorance again. Now, in a way, this contact, feeling, craving, and then, of course, getting now to attachment, clinging, as being the next link, upadana, upadana. 
and clinging. Now, what this is referred to actually in in Sanskrit, it's quite a number of meanings that it has. One is if you've seen the way flame clings to a log, it appears to be attached to it. Um, metaphors of fire abound in Buddhism. There's lots and lots and lots of different metaphors. I mean, you must know everything is burning. Everything is burning from the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. Is something the Buddha says. These three fires of greed, aversion, and delusion refer back to his society, these Brahminical fires that had to be kept stoked. The act of stoking the fire, actually in, well, originally, because the same word in Sanskrit and Pali, was an act of upadana, literally fueling it. Now, when I stick my coals on the fire or my firewood on the fire, I'm fueling the fire. Here the Buddha's turned it in that we're fueling the fires of greed, aversion and delusion. So, if you want to keep your fires burning, cling. <laughs> yeah, this is what the Buddha is saying. There are lots and lots of different images that are offered for upadana, clinging, within the texts. You find images and metaphors are used such as the particular one I always refer to, which is catching a monkey. Yeah. What you do is you catch the monkey in various, various ways. And one, uh, I'll give you the most graphic one first, which is to lay down tar in, in the forest. The monkey comes along, sticks its paw in, looks at it, tries to pull it out, can't get it out, so it sticks its foot in to try and pull itself out. And then it puts its other hand in or other paw in to try and pull out the foot and the paw. Now it's got three stuck limbs. And eventually it gets its head stuck as well. You know, I won't tell you what happens to the monkey because it's very sad <laughs> in the end. Um, and what the Buddha suggests in this, that the, all the monkey had to do was stretch out its paw and hold on to something which was firm to hold to, to pull himself out of the situation or herself out of the situation. And that would be a piece or a branch. And this is kind of synonym for the Dharma, something that's firm, something you can extract yourself out of the situation with, you know, that's solid. Yeah, and that would be the Dharma, understanding of the Dharma. Now, the next one, which I think is very, again, I think is particularly useful for our situation, is the other way of catching a monkey is to bury something in the ground, usually a bowl, with a long, thin neck, put something at the bottom of the bowl that the monkey wants, such as a piece of fruit, the monkey will come along, put its paw in, extend it down into the bottom of the bowl, grab what's at the bottom of the bowl, one trapped monkey. Because <laughs> <laughs> it can't now extract its paw. What it's got to do to extract its paw is to let go of what it's got in its paw to do it. Yeah. But it doesn't. I think it's a wonderful metaphor for human beings. <laughs> Talk about being trapped by the things that you have. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, this is another good reason for looking with the eye of renunciation <laughs> at what we have, because we're often entrapped by it and by the things that we have. Yeah. So it's looking very, very closely that what we have often is stoking our fires of greed, because if you have more, you want more. Yeah. The Buddha's 
although this was obviously to his uh, bikus and biki, uh, biki, uh, bikinis, I don't know, bikinis. Shows you what a three and a half hour drive does to you. <laughs> 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 bikus and bikinis, yeah, okay. <laughs> None of you are Freudians out there, are you? <laughs> so, uh, he's saying to his monks and nuns, to his <laughs> bikunis and bikus. You'll never again get it right. No, i never again get it right now. Uh, to be content with little. Now, obviously, in the West, primarily we're talking in lay communities. Um, so it means really looking... You know, not in a monastic way of things, but actually looking at our possessions often you know, because, of, because of this entrapment by them. So actually, literally, we are entrapped by what we have. John, could you say something about that on a much more finer level of meditative experience rather than the sort of gross side yeah, of sure. the social um, we, um, we get the feeling turn, and then we start talking this sort of big, big sort of... Mm social, cultural, anthropological level, which isn't what we're sort of... So just, but could you just talk a bit more about Upadana at that level? Upadana, well, Upadana could be clinging to some particular experience and wanting it to be repeated. So, for example, you might get a deep level of samadhi, some kind of jhana experience, and then want to either hold on to that experience rather than to see what is actually happening with it, or to want to repeat it. Yeah. So now what is going on, and we're talking obviously about much more subtle levels of experience than the ones, I've, as you say, I've talked about so far, but what we're doing now is we're clinging to an idea of experience. And actually what we're doing in that is missing what is actually going on in our experience. So it's, again, it's coming back to ignorance again because we're constantly overlooking what is actually happening. Mm. And we often do that in the service of something we want to happen or are still clinging to. So think about what's going on in the mind. For example, when I'm having an experience, I'm really enjoying it. I want it to continue. And so the mind has suddenly become much more contracted. And it starts to not look at, not attend to anything else that's arising. And so, as that experience starts to diminish, you've got to cling to it even more strongly. And so it's becoming more and more contracted. And one of the things, I think I talked about them last week, that's really spoken about, particularly with true mindfulness, the establishment of true mindfulness, it comes in with lightness, flexibility, malleability of mind. There are other qualities as well which come in. So in other words, it's not contracted. It's staying with in that soft sense. Yeah. Now I think the image actually works very well because one of the other images that's used, again, is a monkey image, but it's a monkey clinging to something that it really won't let go of. And so we can do that at subtle or gross levels. So we get entrapped by experience. We get entrapped by possessions. Yeah. We look, and I think this is part again, perhaps part of the tendency. I'm 
keep an eye on the time. Part of the tendency to want to establish stability in our lives. And identity. And identity, of course, yes. Well, again, there's often confusion in the sense of being. We are what we do. We are what we have. We are what we experience. These are all ways that we can establish. So from gross to subtle levels. Talking about, I must, I must give you this example. I think some of you might have heard it before, but w- during last, was it last? It was last summer. It might have been a bit earlier than that. Um, I heard this conversation going on over my neighbour's fences, and it went something like this. I can't remember it entirely, but it went something like this: I can't possibly lend you that. I <laughs> <laughs> said this before. I can't possibly lend you that. I don't use it myself. <laughs> 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 I think that's just a little bit of entrapment, don't you? <laughs> so it means, and I think I think it's very good of Rohan to actually point out that actually when we're you know, looking at the subtlety of our, what's going on, it really is a flexible, malleable way of looking at what's going on without contracting around any particular experience any particular insight or any particular state of concentration or jhanic state or that sort. Literally, I think it's going to connect much, much more with some of the stuff we're going to be looking at in relation to Madhyamaka, the middle way, middling way, because it's really like just watching, just seeing what's going on without clinging to any of that. Now, we cling as well to create our sense of being. This is the becoming. Becoming something or someone in this world. And that's to do with identity again, coming through. So we cling to certain experiences because they valorize who I am. We cling to our professions and our jobs, our ways of looking at ourselves, ways of wanting others to look at us and see us, again, to valorise us in our sense of being. What does valorise mean? Uh, it means establish. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of slightly linked to... Well, validate, actually. Yeah. That would do as good. Validate us in our being. Yeah. So we're, we're doing that, and we do that constantly, constantly, constantly. And this is all part of this task of being a self in this world. Yeah. Yet, and this is kind of, kind of winding up to the conclusion of the story, who did it, um, is this, because no matter, and you could see actually, this is a wonderful, so far, flowchart that I've got up to so far, particularly this latter part of, you know, of, of contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, well, that's a wonderful description of addiction. Yeah. And, and I mean that seriously. I mean from the point of view of literal addiction, but being addicted to certain types of experience and being who we are. Yeah. It's a wonderful flowchart of addiction. Which yeah. was the becoming? Is that... Becoming is bawa, which is this the one that follows on. Dependent on clinging arises becoming. You know what it says next. Yeah. That's number 10. That's number 10, that's right. So, so that's what becoming? Becoming, yes. What's the Pali word? Sorry? The Pali word? Bhava. B-A-B-H-A-V-A. And 
not become other, not the, the craving. Confusion and sankharas by being fed by confusion and dispositions coming through into the present moment. Um, it really does present, as I say, an addictive pattern, the way we're addicted to certain experiences. Now, even if we manage to get to this point and we become, manipulate the situation so that we get what we want, because actually becoming can be also about the manipulation of any given situation that we're in, to get what we want. To become who we want to be in that moment. Yeah. And you might actually get it. Yeah. You know, in terms of a, a cycle of addiction, you might actually get your drug, but you might actually get your experience. You might get to be, for a brief moment in time, the person who you want to be. You know, who you, The idea of who you want to cling to be. But... When that comes into being, that is what's generally referred to as birth. Jati, J-A-T-A-T-I, G-A-T-I. So this becoming, it's really, um, um, well, an identity in a way. It, it's like your, whatever it is, like mm. I think of Tony Blair, all that sort of, mm. you know, inability to be straight about what's going on, and then, well, all that sort of stuff, you know. All that sort of thing as well as what's involved in becoming. I'm, all, I'm literally, I might arrive from time to time, but I'm always in the process of becoming or re-becoming something. You remember I said, you know, like having to go out each day and be the same person. Even that is the whole process of becoming. Mm. I never actually arrive at it, really. Well, it's an imaginary thing. It's yes, of course. Winding something up, you know. Yeah. I get the illusion of getting there. That's the birth. That's the jati. Sorry, is that... 11. And is that That's 11. 11. Yeah. But you might not get there. You might not get there. So... But we'll get somewhere, even if we don't get where we want to be. So is that another number? No, that's, that's still... This is still number 11. This is still jati. Oh, so Both. the birth is, is whether we get it or we don't get That's it. That's right, because we're always finding ourselves in a situation. Yeah. I might get to be the sort of person I want, I might not get to be the sort of person I want to be. So the birth makes us either happy or not happy. Yeah. So it sort of can be another of our um, uh, Vedanas. We could get Vedanas. It has a feeling, it has a feeling tone attached to it. Yeah. It's almost like pulling something off, you know, you, you're able to convince people to take you for who you are in this yeah. moment. And, That's right. And so if you are able to do that, with, presumably it's, it's always um, like gambling in a way. But mm. if, you, if, you, if you put, it, it, you know, psychologically, object mm. relations about having a picture of who you are, and, and, and people repeat them. And mm. if, if you repeat them, you, you kind of strengthen this thing, your, your, whatever it is, you mm. know. Is that, is that it's right, you always strengthen but there's always that sense, and I, again, I think this is psychologically quite subtle, that even when we're doing it, it's a performance. There's a hollowness to it. 
I was always very struck um, years ago when I read Kierkegaard's journals, um, the Danish philosopher. And in one particular phrase, I always remember one particular phrase, he said, I went to a party tonight, and he said, I was life and soul of the party. He said, witticisms dripped from my lips all evening. I went home and wanted to shoot myself. Mm. (laughs) Because there's this hollowness to it. In many ways, if you kind of took out the last line of that, you think, well, that was a wonderful experience, wasn't it? But, of course, often we do feel very hollow inside. But the one thing that's to finish this story off, the one thing we know, whatever the situation is that we've got ourselves into, wherever we've arrived, because in a sense birth is a place of arrival, that's really what it represents, a place of arrival, is that it will decline and disappear. And then the whole thing will begin again. Now, it sounds like this is kind of big temporal expanses, doesn't it? Big areas of time. It's not. It's like going on moment to moment to moment to moment. So what's 12? It's old age and death. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. Decline and dissolution. I still don't really understand this birth thing. Um, I mean, society is about pulling off these performances, it seems to me. Mm. I find myself thinking of Kate Moss for some reason. You know, <laughs> okay. papers, papers zero in on whether she has any um, colour, whatever the word, all those little lumps you get in your legs, you know. I mean, it is, at that moment, is, is she like losing it? Is she like losing that birth sort of thing? And no, because she's all, the point is, it doesn't matter where you want to be. I mean, you might get it. I mean, let's take again a crude example, because it might, might make mm. it actually more... Easier to understand. You can see the whole process. Let's take the cycle of addiction. You can see the whole process of being somebody who's deluded into thinking, confused that they ought to do this, because this is a life-enhancing experience to take some kind of ecstatic drug to get this. You know, so, actually, they're attached to the idea of the experience they've got. They cling to it. They often will manipulate the situations to get the substance that they require. They might even arrive at getting their substance and take it. And then there is the decline. So the arrival bit is the birth. Now, it might not happen. Oh, okay. But that's still a situation. The coming to fruition. Yeah. So, to me, uh, you know, I'm thinking psychologically, but this is very much like narcissism. You know, you, you kind of prop up an image of yourself and you're wanting some sort of mirroring and appreciation for that. So if you get it, it's like, oh, I don't know. That's, that's the birth. It's like you've confirmed your identity. Mm. I mean, rather like Kierkegaard, maybe at terrible cost. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. But you've, you've confirmed this conceit fundamentally. You've confirmed the conceit sometimes, and even if you lose, you've confirmed the conceit as well, because I never get what I want. I never arrive. Oh. But that so never arriving is a place of arrival, strangely enough, as well, because that's another sense of identity. That you can build up from that. Now, aren't we terribly clever? Because this is going on moment to moment by moment to moment, really quickly. Yet, and it appears because it's happening so quickly to have a solidity and an inevitability to it. Yeah. Now, if it's presenting you with a kind of picture 
that this is terribly, terribly miserable. Well, it is and it isn't. Yeah. It appears to be so solid, so it appears to be so inevitable because it's happening quickly. Yet, when we start to look at this going on in our experience, now I've talked of necessity in a very kind of almost theoretical, psychological way about this. However, all of this stuff, but particularly contact, feeling, craving, clinging, and possibly becoming, can all be examined directly in your experience. And if you start to find a way into this, and the one we talked about is obviously the connection between feeling and the rising of craving, yeah, <clears throat> you start to find a way of pushing a wedge and creating space in the seemingly solidity of this experience that's going really, really rapidly. So hence the reason why some traditions will spend a lot of time um, examining feeling. A lot of time examining feeling. You know, some, such as the Yubakin tradition, will spend the majority of the time just watching feeling. Watching feeling, both physical, particularly physical to start off with. Watching physical feeling arising again and again. Surfaced stuff on the skin. Nothing else. Nothing deeper than that. Because if we begin to see automatically how we react and this is the words I'm deliberately using here react rather than respond to what is happening even physically to us then we begin to see a way of loosening up the connections to the way that we are reacting to the mental stuff that's arising as well yeah. to break that bond of craving and clinging because actually it's a complex it's really only Pull up, you know, sort of isolatable in this sort of way of teaching, that they actually come together. We cling to what we crave, and that's craving to have and craving to avoid. And, and the focus, um, just now you said, um, in, this, in one of those traditions on the feeling is mm. because pleasant we want to attach to, mm. unpleasant is aversive. Mm. And well, we don't even know what neutral is. Exactly. So it's just even that very physical feeling yeah. of wanting, not wanting. It's it's actually just it's actually just watching, isn't it? Just watching. Just watch yourself. Want, not want. Want, not want. Want, not want. That is could be the whole focus of your meditation. Just watching that going on. Yet both are empty of what we want, which is satisfaction. <laughs> both are the stances. You know, we think we'll be satisfied if we manage to avoid you know, all those niggling aches and pains that you get just through sitting for long periods of time. You know, even the nice sensations that are arising, they will, well, they'll show their three marks, won't they? All of them, both unpleasant and pleasant experiences. So show that they are actually empty of any essentiality, because they change, they transmute, they change. And they're also dukkha. Because I can't avoid them, and I can't control them. There's coming and going. And that's a very, very good training to start to begin to see 
what we're facing and experience again and again and again. So this is kind of practical dependent origination. You have to understand, obviously, how it's set up, but then you take that understanding to your meditation seat and initially focus on sensation and just bodily sensation. Just see what's coming up. See what the mind wants to do with it. Either reject it or cling to it. Reject to it or cling to it. And in seeing that, you see the possibility of release. And then? <laughs> and then, well, because of ultimately you can apply this, and this is a traditional way of doing it, applying it to mental material that's arising. Seeing the tendency to want to cling to nice thoughts, nice imagery, and the tendency to want to reject it as well. So it's kind of progressive. And feeling, of course, is the second of the Satipatthanas. It's the second of the ways of establishing mindfulness. You know, once you've gone through the mindfulness of the body and all the categories and understanding the body is just a composite thing, watch the breath. You can then move into beginning to look at body feeling and then, in a sense, mental feeling. The, the feeling tones which are associated with those experiences. And then it becomes a, a progressively more subtle story. And I always say, when you're looking at the Satipatthana, when you're looking at the ways of establishing mindfulness, you know, what you're doing is you're going from the most readily observable to the most subtle elements of our experience. You know, so it's going from surface to depth, you know, deepening of that experience. Now, you can't do that unless you obviously work from what's possible, and what's possible at this moment in time is usually the first two of the is usually the first two of the um, Satipatthanas. So in daily life, if you're not awakened, you need to make choices. You don't have that link yet to the, the inherent wisdom. Uh, but you're also mindful enough to know that your wants and your not wants are coming and going and aren't real. Mm. On what basis do you make decisions? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a big component in making decisions, which is, well, let's take lay life, um, five precepts. Is it going to infringe any of the five precepts as guidelines for living? So the ethical component is what can actually, in the early stages of practice, help us with making the decisions that we have to make. Now, that's not necessarily the way I think the Buddha intends the five precepts to be ultimately used. But in the early stages, we almost have to use them as prescriptions to guide life. I think ultimately, again, because it's a movement from gross understanding to subtle understanding, you're moving from that more prescriptive element to a much more inquiry element. You know, so you're opening up an ethical inquiry through them. But you know, just at that basic level, it's ethics that's the determining factor. So that because it's just really not talked about at all, and it's something mm. that I'm really struggling with. In mm. I mean, it's it's all very well talking about these concepts when you're on retreat and mm. when you're talking about meditation, but when you actually trying to bring them into real life, it becomes almost impossible. Partly because of the speed at which everything is happening, yeah. but also partly because if you don't believe your cravings, yet you've got no way of tapping into. I mean, mm. sometimes. 
I find I have a way of tapping into that intuition, but often when it's the most important thing, you're pressured and mm. you haven't got an hour to sit on the cushion and mm. find it out. Well, that's, so, uh, that's when I think you have, to in, you have to invoke the precepts as yeah. being your guideline. Okay. Yeah, and that's what they are. I mean, the proper way of understanding the precepts is as rules of training. That's actually what the full mm. thing is. I undertake a rule of training. So it's a way of training the mind, again, inclining the mind in a particular way. Um, and I think that's right. I mean, living, living in, ordinary, in the ordinary world is tough. We'll, um, it's never, sometimes it's not that easy, and there has to be compromise yeah. as well. Living in the monasteries is tough, too. Oh, it's, yes. It's not a, I don't know it's better or worse. I, I just think it's the same. I mean, having been in both environments, I think it's exactly the same. I mean, I certainly... <laughs> I think... Um, Certainly, St. Benedict you know, recognized that because he had a rule of training in his monks' um, vows, which was monks shouldn't hit each other. One of the bhikkhus' rules is you're not meant to rush into the Queen's bedroom without knocking. <laughs> yes. Which well, must have happened when, you know, when the weather was around. <laughs> What is the Pali name for number 12? It's Jara Marana. J-A-R-A. Hyphen. A-M-A. A-M-A. No, M-A-R-A-N-A. -A -A. Thank you. Jara Marana. I won't give you all the, the dots and things together. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... That's a brief flip through dependent origination. <laughs> Very brief at that. Um, but the main thing I want you to hear coming out of this is, obviously we've gone through it fairly, say, ploddingly in a certain sense, is to now try and see it in terms of your experience. And this doesn't have to be sitting on a cushion. Just watch what the mind's doing with contact, feeling, desire or craving. I actually prefer the word desire sometimes. And clinging. Just watch what that's going on. Even if you're just familiarising yourself with this reactiveness initially, to see what's going on. Feel, you know, and sometimes it's actually good just to stay with the feeling, isn't it? Just to stay with the unpleasant feeling or the pleasant feeling without movement either way. To satisfy it, you know, to try and quench it, or to avoid it. Just to be with it. Because that is life, actually. We're ultimately going to have to be with the pleasant and the unpleasant. Yeah, we can't help that because that's the way stuff comes to us, as pleasant or unpleasant. What we can do is something about the reactivity. This is a training for equanimity. Yeah. And I think in early Buddhism, if I was writing an equation, the equation is equanimity equals nirvana. Equanimity equals nirvana. If you're, um, you're conscious staying with the, the sensation of the, the, uh, the feeling, the, yeah, the mm. aversion to it, mm. or the pleasant or the pleasant, unpleasant, mm. say, forgetting about neutral, are you kind of, is it, are you kind of like freezing the chain at that point? Yeah. You're just kind of staying with. That's right. You, in, a, in a way, you. For a moment. It may only be a moment. Yeah. But for that moment... That gives you the option. Yeah, that moment, you're not into the 
all the other links that come afterwards in the chain. You're just, as you say, freeze-framing at that moment of Vedana. Well, then you can see, because you'll probably move on to the next chain very quickly, but then you could get some sort of insight into what, how it's worked. Yeah, but that's the familiarisation. Yeah. Keep seeing it operating. Testing and experimenting, seeing if you can stop it. It's very interesting, even psychologically, that um, what actually, again, cognitive scientific experiments have done is with very, very strong desires, you know how long they actually last? Strong desires. Hmm. It's a very short period of time. It's actually about 30 seconds. Oh, wow. They come back again very quickly. Mm. But, mm. yeah, if you can actually stay with a desire, or a craving, if you want to use that, continue to use that, and you sit with it, you watch it diminish. You might watch it come back again, and you can watch it diminish. And the staying with it often is in that acknowledgement it starts to wear out. <laughs> if you don't do anything to feed it. That's right. If you, if you don't means, stoke the fire. Means, yeah. If you don't stoke the fire, mm. the fire will go out. Mm. Now remember one of the meanings of the word nibbana or nirvana is literally to go out. It's an intransitive verb in Pali and Sanskrit. It means gone out actually, literally gone out. In other words, I've ceased to keep on putting any more fuel on the fire. So it's just, it, I mean, this is why it's often referred to as one who is awakened is cooled. Yeah. And that doesn't mean cold. Bonds. <laughs> Bonds. Okay. I'm changing my mind. Okay. <laughs> so. Just make the t- there's the emptiness then. The emptiness comes from awareness. Well, the emptiness is intrinsic to the whole thing. Well, first of all, what what where are we looking for it to be empty? Well, we're looking for it to be empty of any substantive existence. Now, that doesn't that sounds very kind of technical. I don't mean it to be, but normally think abnormally how we are behaving both mentally and physically, when we get a strong desire and act on it, it feels very solid, as if it's inevitable. I've got to have that thing, or I've got to be this type of person, or whatever, going right from the gross to the subtle again. It feels very, very solid because there's a great deal of constriction there and contraction around that idea. What you're doing is seeing that even that seeming um, power of desire itself is originated. It's dependent on all of those factors before. So it doesn't possess the solidity that you think it does. Um, Just what would you call the desire of the Buddha, let's say, to leave the palace and for six years of uh, training mm. and, you know, to get to his enlightenment. Well, that's, that? it's very different, actually. Um, without getting into, getting into linguistic stuff, and that's unfortunately what you end up doing with, with trying to make a distinction, like what's, what's the healthy form and what's the unhealthy form, because actually there is a healthy form of desire, and that's called chanda in Pali. 
And that form of desire, when it's directed towards awakening, is considered to be very healthy. It can take unhealthy forms against one of those ethically variable things. But it's never tanha. But that's why, and I think we talked about this last week a little bit, I mean, none of you would be here if you didn't have a desire for things to change in a, in a positive way, even if at this moment in time the thought of awakening is not there. I mean, I hope it is for everybody, but, you know, that's directed towards a wholesome thing. It's directed towards something wholesome. Whereas actually, unfortunately, tanha, this word I'm translating as craving or desire, is never directed at anything wholesome. It's nearly, well, it is totally destructive. I think I've only ever come, and I think it's probably a later interpolation, mm. I've only ever come across one passage with Tanha being referred to as wholesome in the whole canon. So, is Chanda, it doesn't have its place in the leaves? No, it doesn't. That's, again, we'd be looking, <laughs> no, because remember this is a description of Sangsara. You know, it's, it's not exhaustive by any means, but it's showing the bare elements that are there within the sangsaring experience mm. and the way that we are patterning that experience. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's not exhaustive or... No, no, no. I mean, no, because that's, that's why you've got these many, many different perspectives in, mm. in Buddhist psychology and you know, philosophy, if you want a better word, uh, coming in from many, many different angles. And so when you really want to get the full, what I call the full picture, then you look at something like the Abhidhamma, because that will show you, you know, all of the elements that are involved. Yeah. How many wholesome intentions are there? How many wholesome ones? Yeah. I mean, there's lists of everything. I'm presuming there's a number. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's, there is a number. Uh, well, there's what's called Sobhana Chattasakas, beautiful Chattasakas, um, mental factors, and there's 25 of them all in all. Oh, that, that few. I thought they were. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. are, they, are they listed anywhere that you know offhand? If I've got it with me, I'll get a photocopy of them for you. Cause I, if you don't mind handwritten, because they were handwritten out. Me when I was yeah, teaching. Yeah. I think that's a sort of useful thing to have around one's person. Yeah, it's 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 good it's good to remind yourself that. It's good to remind yourself that there are two ways of approaching this and one is obviously to look at it um, in the sort of diagnostic sense and seeing what the problem is, but also seeing the other side of it. You know, so I mean if you want a very simple one, 
good listings. Well, we all know, and I haven't talked about them so much this time, I, don't think, I, I think I mentioned them, but that's about it. There are five hindrances which we're constantly discovering again and again and again in our meditation. Um, but if we also look into our minds, we will discover what's called seven factors of awakening as well. And it's good to know both sides. You know, and some of those factors of awakenings are things like sati, mindfulness. Yeah. Like pasadi, tranquility, piti, joy, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's good to see both sides of the mind. Now, it's more difficult to get a glimpse of the other ones because obviously they're buried often under the weight of them. But in those odd moments, for example, that when there's a stillness and a joyfulness on the cushion, that's one of the factors of awakening arising. I think, especially in modern day psychology, it's um, certainly, personally speaking, the way that I've been trained professionally. It's 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 negative. Totally, um, your your mind is trained to look for the negative, mm. specifically <clears throat> in my case. And it's taken me a long time to retrain it to see the positive. And so sometimes, for me, going going through all of the the negative pitfalls, I get sort of caught in a trap of this is what I shouldn't be doing, this is what I, sh- what I shouldn't be doing all the time and mm. not actually s- seeing what what comes easily, positively. Yeah, I think I think that's the big thing. I think, I can through, actually hear speak from personal experience because at one stage I was training to be a Lacanian analyst. You know, Lacan, French Freudian. And... Um, and I thought it was wonderful. I just got it absolutely, diagnostically, it got it absolutely right. But I never found any positive way of getting out of it. It diagnosed the situation incredibly, but never showed you any real way of getting out. In fact, I don't think he actually believed there was a way of getting out of it. <laughs> At all. Yeah. Um, and that's the reason why I stopped training in that. Because you know, I thought that you know, the Dharma tradition, which I'd been steeped in, just... Okay, yes, it spent a long time, and we, we do spend long times, looking at the problem. But that's only to get it clear, to show what the immensity of the problem you're dealing with and the ways and strategies of being able to overcome it, to move away from it. You know, so diagnosis has to have a sort of end at some point, and then something constructive has to start happening. Why, why choose Lacan versus uh, Carlyle? I just, I, I, this, this is me. It's just I didn't find the Jungian perspective particularly satisfying. No. Um, whereas I find Lacan much more satisfying because it's so linguistic. It's much more how we're embedded in the structures of language. Yeah. And that's shaping and forming a lot of what we, I mean, Lacan had this idea that the unconscious was society and culture and everything that worked on us. Yeah, that was the unconscious. Um, so it's just that, that's my kind of intellectual wanting something that was more satisfying. <laughs> but that's getting a long way from this. And, uh, it's nearly twenty past nine, so I suggest that uh, <laughs> it's probably a good place to finish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.